Broadcasting live around the globe from San Antonio, deep in the heart of Texas, this is Paranormal Analytical. I'm your host, Eddie Hill, and I will be presenting reports and evidence of some of the most astonishing paranormal claims. I'm joined by my co-host, Renee Rodriguez, and our director and producer, Miguel Cantu, will be monitoring the chat room and phone line. We have a fantastic show for you tonight that will open your minds to the infinite possibilities to explain our universe. Get comfortable and prepare yourself for the best paranormal show in the world. This is Paranormal Analytical. Hello and welcome everybody. My name is Eddie Hill and this is Paranormal Analytical. Tonight we have Miguel Cantu who is out on special assignment. So we do not have him around tonight. So I'm going to have to be monitoring the chat room and everything all by my lonesome. And I don't know why I have an echo. Oh wait a minute. Now I know why. Helps if I uh, cut off some other audio streams that's going on over here. And I was like. I hear myself, but we also have Renee Rodriguez, who is my co-host tonight. Say hi, Renee. Hi, y'all. <laughs> Forgot I got to tell you to say hi. He is a you man of to. many words, as you can tell, but we got a great show for you tonight. We have Jonathan Abel, everybody, and Jonathan Abel published a UFO book-based uh, audiobook, actually, and screenplay. He believes he has determined who the original men in black were during World War II, He's retired broadcast news anchor in the Phoenix area and has won two Emmys, two tellies, and the NY Film Festival with his productions and has been in over 3,000 radio and TV spots. Check that out. But one of the cool things that he's got going for him, he's got a book out right now called MacArthur and the UFOs. Everybody, welcome uh, Jonathan Abel. Jonathan, you with us? I am with you. Awesome, man. It's great to have you on here. How you been doing? Been doing great. I've been looking forward to this interview. Uh, uh, you guys have got quite a thing going. Good to meet Renee here, too. Yeah, yeah. Renee is Good our mad you. scientist. He's the one that uh, yeah. comes up with all our cool stuff that we have for uh, uh, all our investigations that we do. He he's puts everything together for us and sets everything up so that we can actually go out and find the stuff that we're looking oh, for. Oh, I love being a nerd. He is. He is a serious nerd. You know, it's just his pocket. guy with the hair. Hey, his pocket protector gets in the way of everything, I promise. You know, that that is yeah. that is the issue here. But, Jonathan, take us back a little bit, man. I, you know, I like to dive right into this stuff. And, I mean, I've been really excited about everything that, you know, you and I have talked about. And I want you to go back to the time when you first started getting involved in the paranormal, whether it was UFOs or hauntings or whatever the case may have been. Back in the day, that actually sparked your interest and said, and it, where you thought to yourself, you know, this is something I want to do. Well, 
I was first approached <laughs> when I was about three years old. I won't go into that. It's 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 too bizarre. But what really got me going was actually seeing a UFO. I mean, there's nothing like seeing something like that to make a believer out of you. And then a couple of years later, I came across a statement that General Douglas MacArthur made to the 1955 graduating class of West Point. Uh, MacArthur was the youngest superintendent in the history of the school. He was uh, very well liked and uh, quite a guy, but they kept having him back to address the graduating students and he kept bringing up UFOs. <laughs> he, he maintained that the next great war was going to be earth people versus whoever approached us. Uh, people from other planets, to unquote him. And uh, so in that, my uncle, who definitely was the bravest man I have ever personally met, uh, he was awarded the Silver Star for uh, keeping a charge, the last great Banzai charge of World War II, as we understand it, uh, keeping the Japanese soldiers from overrunning our position. So he saved a lot of his buddies and he did some quite amazing things with his machine gun that he called Bouncing Betty. Anyway, it was uh, it was something that MacArthur admired. Uh, he uh, turned down the Silver Star from his hospital bed uh, and uh, MacArthur liked his style. So he recruited him as his personal bodyguard for the next six years. Now, MacArthur did not tell my uncle that they were gonna drop the bomb on Japan. So that's when my uncle went to work for MacArthur after they dropped the bomb and uh, bombs. And it was, uh, you can imagine what they saw. So this was kind of a surprise to MacArthur that this took place. I mean, especially him being in the position he was in and them not telling him that this was gonna take place. Well, you know, uh, the vice president of the United States didn't know that we had the bomb. Only FDR and a couple of other people uh, working on the bomb actually knew it existed. It, the secrecy was that tight, and it had to be, of course. But uh, when they dropped the bomb, and even before that, there was a lot of interest in atomic weaponry from UFOs. There were flying saucers in the area of Roswell, White Sands, uh, where we were doing our tests up there, mm -hmm. and in other places uh, uh, over uh, installations. As a matter of fact, during the war, there were so many UFOs being spotted that FDR thought we were being invaded from outer space. At the same time, we were fighting a world war. So FDR wanted to know what was going on, what kind of threat was it, and can we get any of these for our war effort? So there, there were crashes here and there, uh, uh, possibly due to our radar. Uh, we might have been cooking individuals inside of the uh, the UFOs, 
due to our pinpoint radar systems that we had back then, it could have confused things. It could have been the thunderstorms. It could have been a lot of things, but we had some crashes and somebody had to follow up on this stuff. Uh, General Marshall was involved in fighting in Europe and developed the Marshall Plan for which he was awarded uh, the, uh, uh, the Peace Award and, uh, and he deserved it, but uh, he didn't want to deal with the UFOs. FDR wanted somebody to answer for it, and here was this uh, MacArthur fella out in the South Pacific. He was kicking Fanny out there with 15% of the total war budget. He won back the South Pacific, and he won the Congressional Medal of Honor for doing that. So he takes over. Japan. Uh, it might sound cruel that we dropped the bombs, but we saved tens of thousands of Japanese lives as well as American lives by not having the actual conflict. The conflict was called Operation Downfall, and what a perfect name for the end of a culture. Uh, but during that time, there were so many UFOs being spotted by all sides of the participants of World War II. The Germans thought it was America's new uh, 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 technologies. The, the Americans thought it was Germans. They actually called them Foo Fighters, and uh, that's the name of a, a popular musical group, of course, but the group was named after the UFOs of World War II. Uh, there were so many of them being seen that uh, we uh, uh, really took action against them. And, and uh, uh, well, I'd like to jump into the first actual actions against uh, UFOs that was in the uh, uh, the LA area. This is the origins of the Men in Black. Is the the uh, the direction the book is taken? Well, let me let me ask you real quick on the Foo Fighters. Okay. Did they ever? I mean, I know there's a lot of speculation as far as what the Foo Fighters were during World War II, but what is the majority of the people saying that they were? Well, UFOs. Uh, they were. Most of the Foo Fighters were balls of light. They challenged our aircraft. They would dodge around. Uh, 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 people would get scared off of uh, their main trajectory. But it wasn't just aircraft. It was our uh, ocean-going uh, vessels and land, uh, air, sea, and land operations were seeing these strange UFOs that would zip in, in and out, uh, and uh, play stoop tag with our operations. And it wasn't, again, it just wasn't us. I mean, the Italians... How big were they? They weren't very big. Uh, there's some photographs. You can Google photographs of these things, and there's groups of three, four, six of them, and they... They don't look like they're uh, very big at all. Uh, maybe uh, from the size of a beach ball to the size of a car. 
And, and that's, that's the sizes that I've been able to figure out from seeing photographs of them. So they're uh, basically they're just balls of light following the planes and boats. Did they? Did we ever manage to shoot any of them down? Well, uh, we were given orders not to shoot at them because we didn't know what they were. If we were to hit them and tick them off, anything that would have the technology to get to Earth, we were thinking at the time that we don't want to get them angry because they could clean our clocks <laughs> oh yeah so, so uh it, it, there was a certain amount of respect there for things that could do what they were doing and we had no idea what they were as a matter of fact during the battle of los angeles if, if we move to that uh they were seeing some very large and slow ufos um but they were firing at them in this photograph, which appeared on the front page of the Los Angeles Times the next morning. Uh, they have nine, I count nine spotlights on one area right here. And if you see a, a good version of this photograph, you can see that it is a disc and that there are explosions going on around that disc. Nothing is penetrating whatever security they had on board so uh they shot they counted 1452 shells that hit this thing or should have from these huge disappearing guns along the shore i mean these things are big big concrete emplacements with big guns and the recoil brings the gun down and they disappear they load them out of sight and then they pop back up and they shoot again and the recoil brings them back down. They reload. 1,452 of those shells, no effect. Southern California, these things, it's like they chased them out to sea. And then 20 minutes later, they came back. When they came back, they turned out all the lights in Southern California. So there was a mass blackout. Mass blackout, all of Southern California. Uh, went down as far as lights. There were 12 UFOs uh, that I have counted that were spotted during that particular, call it a battle, and they had at least one recovered craft. Uh, and I believe it was this one. They, they lobbed so many shells into this thing that it finally drooped to one side and slowly went out over the water and came back. Then they shot it up again and it went down to uh, one of the beaches south of there uh, and it went out over the water and they had a boat retrieval, uh, something that went out and retrieved it out of the water. Apparently it went down and they got one UFO out of this. So what happened to the UFO? Where did it end up getting shipped to? Good point. These things usually go wind up in, at right field. That, of course, uh, uh, was where the Wright brothers ran the first plane and so forth. Their their headquarters, but uh, and and still there are facilities at right field that are rumored to have beneath them uh, and downstairs and in, in uh, 
emplacements that are secure places where they put not only the UFOs but retrieve bodies of uh, aliens and so forth. It, it is all rumored there, there are people that have uh, whistleblown on it and say that's what was going on and they even have the names of the rooms where these uh, things were stored and, and the, the uh, cadavers kept. Now at some point they started moving stuff to Area 51. I think they just ran out of room. And if you're going to test something, why not go where nobody's going to be looking at you rather than downtown <laughs> Ohio? <laughs> Dayton is not a good place to, to fly things in secret. So uh, uh, I think that's why they, they started. They actually started Area 51, building it in 1951. So it was after Roswell, they had pieces of crafts, they had whole crafts, they had uh, bodies. Uh, and, and so finally, just uh, I, I believe out of pure amount of stuff retrieved, uh, they, they needed a place to also to try out uh, the technology that they gleaned from getting these craft. So well, how many ships or how many crafts that they do you think they shot down or it was retrieved uh, during World War II or around that time? Wow. They saw thousands. The general word was don't shoot them down until they mess with us. Uh, we'll talk about Jimmy Doolittle and, and the, the raid on Japan a little while because uh, Doolittle and his people were closely associated with them later on. But Doolittle called them the spectators. And the people under Doolittle uh, that were doing flying and so forth got tired of the debriefings involving UFOs. There were so many of them that they, they would use profanity. It's, uh, uh, Foo Fighters, you can imagine the effing Foo Fighters that, <laughs> that made it into the report. They actually had to fly a guy out from Washington to get the first word off of there. Yeah, I just, just shared, I, I, went, I went to the chat room just now and I shared some photos of some of the Foo Fighters and also that photo of uh, the Battle of Los Angeles that's behind you. I uh, put that into the Not chat crazy. room just now. That's really nuts, you know. And they tried to cover it up, but here it is, front page of the biggest newspaper on the West Coast. Hello. <laughs> now, I take it that the Foo Fighters, that, that, that those crafts slowly started fading away, because there's not too many, there's not much talk about it. I, mean, I don't think there's any, are there any Foo Fighters still around? Do we still have those glowing balls flying around here Ac on, on Earth? I mean, actually, you know what, Renee, uh, if you remember a couple of years ago, there were these uh, orange balls or yellow balls of light that were flying around that was being reported a lot by the U.S. Border Patrol. And uh, they, these balls of light were seen flying in formation. So it was not like uh, these things were just, you know, bits of energy floating around, you know, mindless, you know, and just going wherever. These things were actually maneuvering together and moving in sequence. And some of these were the size of VW bugs. So I guess these were considered, uh, these are still Foo Fighters. The ones we just recently saw. 
I don't know if they were they were considering them Foo Fighters at the time, but if you think about the way the Foo Fighters were said to be seen and their size, it would be about the same as what the Border Patrol was uh, actually uh, uh, reporting, you know, that they were seeing and that they were, you know, chasing down, trying to get. You know, here in Texas? Hmm? Yeah, here in was Texas. Was it here in Texas? Mm-hmm. It's interesting, Eddie. Yeah, I remember that happening. And, you know, even the Phoenix Lights, uh, there were independent. Uh, you know, I, I think the uh, out at uh, Luke Field, they, they sent up some craft to camouflage. And uh, that circular setup that you see the, uh, the lights going on one at a time, I think that was laid out there just to throw us off because there was a major craft uh, there in 1977, uh, March 13th. I remember that because it was the night I turned 50. (laughs) And uh, it was amazing how many people saw it. The uh, and the reason so many people witnessed that craft was that the Hale-Bopp Comet, uh, which was called the Great Comet of 1997, was reaching its perihelion right about at that time. I mean, you could see a comet up there. So people were outside with their binoculars and their telescopes. People were out there looking. And there were over 100,000 people (laughs) all the way from Las Vegas down to Tucson, down south Arizona, that saw this UFO. There was actually a trucker that reported this UFO, which had wings. I mean, it was it was a uh, uh, a, a V-shaped craft, like a boomerang craft, actually, with seven inset lights on it, totally quiet, a mile wide, and it was coasting down Black Canyon, which is a huge canyon between here, uh, central Arizona, and northern Arizona. And this thing was just coasting down, and the trucker is driving nearly beside the thing and watching it go down. He's just going down the road himself, and it, it goes uh, from over Prescott area down into Phoenix, where a lot of people saw it. And then suddenly, the wings collapsed in, and it shot down to Tucson. And it was seen a bunch down there. Now, uh that big triangle that was seen over Phoenix, you know, the one that the mayor was poking fun at, and then later, you know, he came back and said, oh, sorry about that. I mean, what was the yeah. deal with that thing? I mean, uh, we heard a lot of pe- a lot of stories, you know, but I don't think, you know, not actually being in Phoenix, we're actually hearing the, the true story behind it all. There is a Dr. Keo or someone, uh, a wonderful young lady uh, who has a house up on South Mountain. She videotaped the works and uh, has, I think she's, well, she's on the UFO circuit speaking. And uh, she, uh, I think, has a book out and, and is probably the go to expert on the Phoenix Lights. But uh, it, it was big. And it, it went down. See, I was I was out celebrating my fiftieth birthday. I'm I'm this way two miles, and the UFO is coming from this way two miles. It went over uh, 
it went over Sunny Slope. And if you get on YouTube, you can uh, just search for Phoenix Lights and you'll find a cluster of people that are very excited about seeing it and totally believable. Uh, there's one guy says uh, it was a mile wide. You could tell from where it went over the peaks. It was totally quiet. Uh, somebody told another guy that it was a, a beat uh, a fleet of bombers could land on a wind thing. Somebody said it was so close they wanted to hit it with a rock. There was a woman that said if you pull out a newspaper and hold it over your head, you'd still see it on both sides. There was a kid that said, you know, I looked up at it and where the wings went around, there was kind of a, a wavery look like a summer roadway, you know, like the, the waves coming up off the highway in the summer. I mean, this, this thing was really serious. Lots of people saw it. And it went right over my house, and so, I was down. So this was it. not this was not a uh, a bunch of military flares the way they were saying. Oh no, the military flares were were done over the uh, uh, the mountains out to the southwest of town uh, to throw us off. It was a total sham. It was a fake out. And it's it, uh, so it, amazing how how stupid they think that the citizens are how much you know bs they're trying to pull over our eyes it's just amazing and uh they said that it was new mexico it was the new mexico air national guard on a training thing dropping flares over our mountains here well come on can't you do better than that <laughs> oh my that's terrible these people seeing us well you know this yeah. mass sighting when you have that many people seeing it i don't know how they can actually sit there and come back at people and say oh well you know it was uh flares when people were close enough that you know they could probably hit it with a rock you know and you know it, it's just it amazes me the amount of deniability that they go through and go over to try and shut something down and the the government is flat out lying we know people that phoned luke air force base and asked if there were any jets that went out that evening and Luke denied it. Well, uh, we're farm. My family is farmers from the West Valley. And we know a lot of the families out there that uh, uh, reside around and on their farms in the fields and so forth. And there were a lot of jets took off from Luke Air Force Base, and they're just lying about it for whatever reasons. You know, this may seem kind of like a silly question, but why would they? want to lie about so i mean why would they want to lie about it so bad why can't they just admit like there's something that flew over and we don't know what it is how come the military won't just admit to that that's the question we all <laughs> we all are asking why can't we get some kind of uh, reckoning from the government uh, we've got lots of people even uh there are are Okay, as one instance, every astronaut that went to the moon saw flashes of light coming from the surface of the moon. This is about a year ago. All of the astronauts that are still alive said that they all saw flashes of light. Now, 
what are we to take that as do we not believe the astronauts aren't these the people that we're really supposed to trust wouldn't you feel good if there was an astronaut uh, got on your airplane and he was going to be the pilot or <laughs> something you know these are people that are trustworthy folks one would certainly think and uh, uh all of them now uh have said all of them that went around the moon have said this about the moon and even buzz aldrin has uh some some interesting things to say about a big pillar on i think it's eo one of the moons of uh Ju jupiter is it or venus anyway there the, the people that have been out there have seen stuff uh the, there are other astronauts that say all of our, anybody that's been in space has been observed. There have been UFOs outside the windows. Uh, uh, we've, been, we've been watched every time we're out there. Now, th this is, I think it's Brian O'Leary, uh, one of the astronauts, uh, said this. And he says it casually, like we ought to know that. <laughs> but why would they cover it up? Why would they keep covering it up? Maybe during wartime, there was a reason uh, during World War II. You, and, and another thing, there is an odd human response. It's like, it, say, the Russians find out that we have a captured UFO. And we are taking the technology from it, and we are going to become invincible. They might. Oh, no. oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. They might just drop the bomb on us to get one up because we are so invincible. They would have to take us by surprise to get anywhere. Wow. So, you know, that's that's something leering out there too. I mean, the, that was the big fear with North Korea. Well, let's uh, go ahead and hold up right there, Jonathan. Everybody, we're going to take a slight break over here for our commercial that we have to put on here. So you all stay with us. We have Jonathan Abel, everybody. We've got Renee Rodriguez. And you have Eddie Hill. This is Paranormal Analytical. And we are going to do the commercial. We'll be back with some words from prior presidents and all kinds of different things coming up with Jonathan Abel, including... I believe you have some, uh, uh, I guess you could say, uh, voices that you do, Jonathan. <laughs> yeah, Eddie, uh, I, I was a stand-up comic for 10 years, and I was in Las Vegas, and I wasn't even going to tell you that stuff because it's kind of off-topic. But, but uh, when I wrote the book, I found that there were a great deal of people that I impersonated that were involved in UFOs in one way or another. You got Kennedy, you've got Reagan, you've got Churchill, you've got Carl Sagan, all these people. And uh, <laughs> I used to do them in my act for crying out loud. Well, so. <laughs> let us uh, go to commercial and we'll be back with all of that. Nobody go away. You stay right here on the best paranormal radio show. There is Paranormal Analytical with uh, Jonathan Abel and Renee Rodriguez. Stay tuned.
Open Eyes Network now airs a live simulcast on YouTube. Our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Open Eyes Network, features not just our live content, but other videos as well, and is always active. So now you can tune in in many different ways. Open Eyes Network shows air Monday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time live. Be sure to visit OpenEyesNetwork.com to find easy-to-use links to get to all of the places that you want to listen to our shows. And don't forget, all of our shows will now be archived as well on YouTube. There is a better radio show, beyond that which is known to the people. It is a radio show more informative than others, and as timeless as infinity. It is the equilibrium between light and dark, between the sheeple and the paranormal, and it is heard at the base of man's ignorance and at the summit of his knowledge. This is the radio show of imagination, a show we call The Secret Teachings. Open Eyes is dedicated to finding the truth in all matters. We are not afraid to be politically incorrect or to ask questions. Whether it is the paranormal, government cover-ups, the dark agenda that the puppet masters have in store for us, or aliens and UFOs, nothing remains hidden. Listen to Open Eyes, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, starting at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on LateNightInTheMidlands.com or OpenEyesNetwork.com. Open hearts, open minds, open eyes. Ben Franklin said, If you do the same thing tomorrow as you did today, you're going to get the same tomorrow as you got today. Changing the world starts with you, and changing you starts with changing the way you think. Late Night in the Midlands can help. Listen to all of our shows at latenightinthemidlands.com, because things really do need to change. Go on. 
And we are back. My name is Eddie Hill, and this is Paranormal Analytical with Renee Rodriguez, my co-host. And as our special guest, we have Jonathan Abel on MacArthur and the UFOs. So we left off earlier, and we were talking about UFOs and kind of a lot of conspiracies and some of the UFOs that we're seeing in Arizona. But what we're going to be doing now is talking a little bit about some of the more controversial subjects and more of the, I guess you could say, a lot of the Blackwater type uh, situations dealing with UFOs. And uh, Jonathan, uh, you want to start off and let us know a little bit about this next segment and what we're going to be getting into, because this is going to be really, really good stuff. And, you know, and a lot of people talk about conspiracy theories and all this kind of uh, thing. But this is stuff that was actually uh, happening and you actually have on recording as well. You know what? Here is a photograph of actual photograph of MacArthur when they landed in Japan. Uh, my uncle is actually back there in the peanut gallery somewhere. Uh, you want to uh, you want to shoot that to my text and I'll go ahead and put it onto the uh, chat room so everybody can kind of check that out as well while you're talking. Do what? <laughs> <laughs> if you can grab if you could grab that picture and go ahead and send it to me on my text, and I'll put it on the chat room for everybody to kind of look at it if you have that ability. I don't know if you have it on your computer or if you can just email it to me. I don't know which, but if you can get it to me, that would be awesome. Okay, I, I will. I will try to do that. Uh, but keep but talking. Don't wanted, don't stop in the middle of it. You can what do, I you, to do multitask. Was, <laughs> yeah, I'm multitasking. Look out. Okay, this is from the movie Emperor. Now, guess who they got to play MacArthur? Tommy Lee Jones. Okay. What is Tommy known for? Uh, the Men in Black. Right. Hello. Absolutely. They have actually cast Tommy Lee Jones, an actor known for his part as, what was it, Q or something in, in Men in Black? Right. Here they've got him portraying the actual instigator of the men in black now is that a little bit of a conspiracy i don't know if if it's a uh, coincidence I, I i don't much believe in coincidences here you've got the guy that is mr men in black and you've got the individual that had to and we can trace it right back i've got a a, a visual that shows you how it actually worked but I think it's kind of interesting that here we've got the guy. Now, the, the MacArthur report uh, was 10,000 pages. 20,000 if you count the photographs and the sketches. That's strangely the size of uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica at the time. They got this together in just six years of debriefings six years of going and investigating and so forth, you have to have some kind of organization to create that kind of single space typing for the military. Uh, and and what I year was this when this took place? What year was it? Okay, it had to have happened uh, around 1943. Wow, you know, and, and that's something right there, and that tells you something in itself, the fact that they put that many pages together 
from that long ago in that amount of time regarding this because it wasn't a computer. I mean, this was, you know, well, old fashioned, you know, hardcore typing. Clerk typists going at it, you know. I mean, talk uh, about the, sucking the up only, some ribbon. Yeah, the only copies uh, were uh, typing paper, you know. But um, that report was turned over to Operation Blue Book after six years. And the reason it only, it only grew for six years is what MacArthur was called over to Korea to fight in Korea where MacArthur himself says he did his best work. <laughs> so he didn't want any more part of the UFO question. He totally turned it over to Operation Blue Book, which, of course, buried it somewhere in a vault behind the recipe for Coca-Cola. Yeah, well, we'll Project Blue Book was never known for uh, actually putting forth uh, decent information ever. No, uh, uh, they, they never had the staff for it. It was... Uh, it, it, uh, Mr. Rupert uh, was uh, merely there to, to to oversee it. They had thousands of reports that came in. He took the ones that you could not explain and put them over here. The rest of them, they explained them. They actually had a list of explanations on a desk where you pull it out and you put your typewriter there, there was a sheet of paper taped to that wing of the desk. And whatever it sounded like the closest, that's what explanation they would assign it. And it would go over here. But the good stuff, you never would hear about. So that's, that's how the government's still treating things, you know? Yeah, go figure. Yeah, it's, a, it's pretty darn amazing. But uh, let's move. As I described them at the time, their flight was like speedboats on rough water, or as I put it, the newsmen in Pendleton, Oregon, they flew like a saucer would if you skipped it across water. Another characteristic of these craft that made a tremendous impression to me was how they fluttered and sailed, tipping their wings alternately. I felt sure this formation of strange craft was traveling in excess of a thousand miles per hour. Now that's what uh, Kenneth Arnold said in 1947. Now it was about a month later that we had Roswell. So it was a, 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 actually the uh, the reporter that uh, Arnold was speaking to coined the phrase flying saucer because of those words. Do uh, you think prior to Roswell, the United States had a UFO in possession? Yes. I know they did. I know they did. Because uh, in Missouri, uh, there was a crash on a sheep ranch uh, a little before the war. And uh, it, the UFO came in. It hit the top of the barn. And it broke up a little bit and careened out into a field. The farmer, it was during a thunderstorm, and the family was scared. Everybody got down on the floor under the table. They heard this coming and crash, and uh, the farmer went out. There was the UFO. It was broken up. He looked inside. There were two dead bodies in there. 
and one of them had either fallen out or crawled out, and it had moved, before it died, it had moved a, a ways from the UFO. The farmer gets his wife to call the preacher because they need last rites on these bodies. Then, as if by magic, the government comes popping in. The, the preacher gets there, he, he does last rites, and here comes the government. The government, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the uh, it was the army came in, and they said, you didn't see this. Farm family, you didn't see it. It never happened. You will never mention it because we can get you, basically. The, uh, the old preacher himself was threatened. And where was this at? Uh, it was in Missouri. What, what little town? And what year do you, th what was, do you think it was thereabouts? I think it was 41, 1940 or 41, maybe 42, but I think it was just before the war. Because there, there is still here in Texas one that occurred back in the 1800s. Uh, remember that one, Renee, where that uh, UFO crashed to that water tower and uh, they ended the up burying That's the one that looked like a blimp? Yes, the one that kind of looked like a blimp. It was huge. And uh, it crashed into that ranch house back in the 1800s, and they buried the body, but the body has since been retrieved by somebody, and it's no longer there. And some do-gooder came along and moved the headstones. Correct. The whole graveyard. Well, it, it's 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 all it's all gone. All the grave, all, yeah. you know, that gravestone is gone where they had that uh, alien, the body, which yeah. they said was burned badly, and uh, this was back in the and and if you think about it, no matter what anybody wants to say about UFOs, back in the 1800s, there was no way we had anything in the air of any size, especially <laughs> like that, that's going to crash in a some remote farmland. And, and take out a, a windmill and all that kind of stuff. And all the debris was supposedly swept into a well and, you know, covered mm -hmm. up. You know, so, yeah. you know, people talk about, well, you know, it's just our stuff and this and that. Well, back then, we didn't have our stuff. No, that wasn't anything you know? that did that. Yeah, we didn't have our stuff. We had, you know, horses and chariots and... I guess, you know, somebody might have been Which playing is, around with the balloon that floated around. But, I mean, we really didn't have yeah. anything that would carry a human any distance whatsoever, period. Do you know the first balloon ascension in America was by a Frenchman who could not speak English? But George Washington brought him over, wanted to see a balloon ascension, so Washington gave him a letter of safe passage. So this guy, if he comes out of the sky and lands on your farm, farmers are going to run out and shoot the guy. They're, you know, witches, you know. So they gave him a letter of safe passage that he had to hold up and, you know, and and say what he was up to because uh, nobody had seen a balloon yet. Yeah, we had a, a surfer knot on the chat room. Uh, they said uh, Aurora UFO crash of 1897. That's when that happened, 1897. Whoa. So, yeah, I mean, there is absolutely no way, you know, we had any of our stuff in the air because yeah. we didn't have stuff at the time. Yeah. Let it's funny how uh, these these UFOs, uh, the science UFOs, they kind of change in time. So 
in the early in the 18, 1800s that we had the blimps and now they're kind of changing like like something's kind of forcing us to change our perspective you know first it was blimps and then it was kind of like the saucer shaped and now we have the triangles and then we have the orbs it's kind of funny i don't know if it's just more than one type of alien or you know life form coming over here or maybe i don't know something's just kind of forcing us to change the way we think it's it's kind of strange you're right renee i mean if you think about it it's orbs for a period of time and you really don't hear about anything else discs for a period of time yeah uh, and, and see they the just sent interesting they just sent on the chat room uh, a newspaper clipping that says discovery of evidence surrounding 1897 ufo crash baffle scientists you know so i mean this is uh this is pretty big news you know if you think about it well you know it's not just back then uh i saw a newspaper uh story that there have been thousands of ufos seen since the fukushima situation in japan there are ufos like everywhere checking out i don't know what they're doing there but there seems to be a glut of ufos that are checking out the fukushima problem which is going to get a lot worse by the way fukushima could be the end of the world well you know that thing it's leaking like a sieve right now i mean so it's i mean radiation is spewing everywhere and it's already having proud of uh, profound effects in the ocean uh there, there are tide pools along the uh, California coast that are dying. They're changing. And nobody's saying what's going on, but they just dumped tons of water that they were keeping out of the ocean because it was so irradiated. It was so toxic. But now they've just decided to dump it in the ocean. Yeah, go figure. So, I mean, that just, you know, it just, I, I don't understand, you know, people, you know, when it comes to that kind of stuff. You know, let's let's focus back on MacArthur yeah. and uh, some of the stuff that you were talking about. I know we kind of got off that subject a little bit, but I want to kind of yeah. steer us back into it. Well, uh, here you've got Roswell. The, the RAAF captures flying saucers on Ranch and Roswell region. No details of flying discs are revealed. Well, that was one day, and... This was, uh, this was released by the highest technical individual uh, in the 509th Squadron. Uh, that, and, and that group of uh, bombers were the only ones allowed to carry atomic bombs. I mean, this is the, the creme de la creme of technical uh, uh, flying ability and, and technology out there. And uh, they goof. The next day, it's a weather balloon. If if that guy did not know what a weather balloon was and it, identified it as a flying saucer, that's a little squirrely. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and think about this. I mean, this is the United States military. They're not going to make a mistake that they've got a flying disc and it turns out that they've got a weather balloon. Just like the Los Angeles incident where they started trying to shoot that saucer out of the air. And they came back and said it was a weather balloon that they were shooting at. And they huh. spent all those shells, killed, what, eight people? 
in the process, you know, you've got shrapnel falling throughout the city of Los Angeles and nobody could hit this thing. I mean, it, it <laughs> you know, this is the United States military. This is the creme de la creme. This is, you know, these guys know how to shoot. They know what's what. They're going to know they the practice. difference between a weather balloon and they're going to know how to hit it. Exactly. They, they tried to pass it off as a blimp, a weather balloon, uh, different things for e- even the uh, Battle of Los Angeles. And it just doesn't fly, so to speak. Okay, Surfer Not on the chat room wanted me to ask you, do you know a Daniel Salter who worked for the NRO, National Reconnaissance Office? Have you ever heard no. that name? <laughs> I sure don't. That's an easy one to answer. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Yeah, because apparently uh, they're they're asking about that on the as far as this name goes. Uh, Surfer not, I know you're listening, man. Uh, send me some information on what you're exactly talking about on this and, and what you're trying to find out. He may have some information related to it that, and he just doesn't know the name. Mm. Okay, go ahead on, on on what you're talking about here. Well, here is the guy that made Roswell popular. Uh, Stanton Friedman, this fella here. Yeah, Stanton Friedman. Yeah, Stanton is uh, quite a guy. He's uh, uh, written numerous books, but uh, uh, his uh, books on Roswell and and uh, what went on there have put him at the forefront. First, a statement from Chase Brandon, a former CIA agent, thirty-five year veteran. In a 2012 announcement timed to the 65th anniversary of the Roswell headlines, he said, Now I have some written material and some photographs, and that's all I will ever say to anybody about the contents of that box, but it absolutely for me was the single validating moment that everything I had believed and knew that so many other people believed it happened truly was what occurred it was not a damn weather balloon it was a craft that clearly did not come from this planet i don't doubt for a second that the use of the word remains and cadavers was exactly what people were talking about chase brandon uh, did not say exactly what was in the box that he got a look at because people that blow cover wind up dying hmm. it's not good for your health to spill the beans and uh he got a look at some stuff that he was not supposed to and uh so he came out about it that far that's all he'll say and for good reason wow President Harry S. Truman, 1950. I can assure you that flying saucers, given that they exist, are not constructed by any power on Earth. Of course, these are still my impersonations of the characters, but that's a doggone good Truman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's Damn, that's a good Truman. <laughs> But Truman was pretty much uh, the pencil pusher for FDR. He, he Truman just went on with the same uh, stagnant uh, 
policies as FDR, but Truman was tuned in on UFOs and would talk about it. He's one of the last presidents that would or could talk about what it. What does all this stuff about flying saucers amount to? What can it mean? What is the truth? Now, Churchill said those words in 1955 because he launched his own investigation into UFOs in America. There was a fantastic flurry of UFO sightings over Washington, D.C. We would, there were a dozen or so, would show up. They're zooming around. They're doing things that no conventional uh, craft can do. We send our jets up after them. Zip, they're out of here. We land our jets. They're back. This goes on for two days. And Churchill and his people are wondering, what the heck? You know, uh, the U.S. is not saying anything about it. Undoubtedly, we're a little embarrassed and not knowing what to say. So Churchill sent his people. What he found out bothered him enough that he put the information in a sealed file with instructions that in 50 years, whoever was in charge of the UK at that time could look at the file and decide whether to put it in the deep six for another 50 years. Which is? That's what they, they did it. Yeah, of course they did. <laughs> All right, well, we're going to take a short break, everybody. Jonathan Abel on uh, UFOs and MacArthur. Well, MacArthur and the UFOs. And we shall return here shortly after this break. This is halftime, so everybody get up, get a cup of coffee, hit the restroom, but don't go away. Come back. It's getting really good. The rising rate of autism is not just concerning, it's a disaster. No matter what the cause of it is, it is something that everyone should be acutely aware of and actively helping out those in the community that have it. That is why Adventures in Autism was created. Adventures in Autism is a show inspired by our life with our son Seth and the many experiences his autism has brought to our lives. Each episode, we bring you the topic of the week news about autism, and resources to help you and your family or friends out in their own adventures with autism. Tune in Mondays at noon and midnight on lnmradionetwork.com or openeyesnetwork.com and get involved in the community. Let our experiences be an inspiration to you. Attention LNM Radio Network listeners. Did you know that when you're on the road with limited data or Wi-Fi available, you can still listen to every minute of the LNM Radio Network by calling 605-562-4203. No smartphone app or internet needed. 
Saves your data plan and no extra cost if you have unlimited minutes. Call 605-562-4203 to listen to the LNM Radio Network on any phone, anytime, anywhere. There are days that the red pill is bitter in my stomach, but I can't get it back out. I think because I have to. I speak because I have no choice. I walk through this dark age we're in with open eyes. Listen to Open Eyes on LateNightInTheMidlands.com And together, maybe we won't stumble and fall. The Late Night in the Midlands Radio Network is deeply devoted to you, the listener. We feel it is necessary to bring you all of the information that you can use in your life. Each and every day, you will find something to listen to here. And whether you come away from the shows informed, inspired, or entertained, it is our passion. We don't bow to corporations, and we don't have handlers to tell us what not to talk about. We bring you everything. Late Night in the Midlands, however, is fully listener-supported. We need your help to stay on the air and to make sure that we get the bills paid. We need your help to keep the truth alive. If you feel that you have gotten anything out of Late Night in the Midlands, we would appreciate your support. You can become a subscriber and help us out on a monthly basis, or if you'd like, a one-time donation is fully appreciated as well. Every year, the average household in America spends over $3,000 on entertainment alone. If you could help us with just a tiny fraction of that amount, you would make all of the difference. Go to LateNightInTheMidlands.com and click on the subscribe button. Thank you, and as always, keep yourself informed. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
back with you with Jonathan Nabel and Renee Rodriguez co-hosting with Paranormal Analytical. My name is Eddie Hill, your host, and welcome back. So we have quite a bit more to go over, and since that was just our halftime break, we still have a lot of information to share with you guys. And uh, real quick, Jonathan, while we're talking and you're on the air, why don't you go ahead and give out some uh, maybe uh, email, or not email, but a uh, well, email address if you want. I mean, if people have information for you, that might be useful to you as well. But also, uh, you know, where they can check out your book, where they can get it. You know, let's go ahead and get that plug-in going for you. Because <laughs> I, I, I definitely want people to, to be able to check this out. Because, I mean, that, that is some interesting information that you have in there. Well, I, you know, I tried to make it different than, than what you usually run into. It's not like uh, you're not going to find bibliographies and stuff. You're going to find a, a story. Uh, there are certain things that we know happened and if you consider those signposts what I did was fill in the countryside along the way conversations that had to have happened in one way or another uh, situations that follow logic uh, I've got the book but from the book developed an ebook. Then a uh, an enhanced ebook, and finally the audio book, and the audio book is what I would actually recommend. Um, there's eight CDs in it, and uh, the impersonations of the different characters and so forth are all in there. I'm a fan of early radio, uh, 30s type radio, back when theater of the mind was going on, and uh, uh, so I, I tried to convey that level of production value to the audiobook. And if you go, here's how to get it free. If you go to Audible and are not a member, sign up and you get a free book. An <laughs> free audiobook. And then you can unsign up. You don't have to pay for anything. You can, you can get your free book and then go off and, and listen to it. Uh, you don't have to actually pay the monthly fees or anything like that or, or pay for any other books. So that's one way to get to it. But um, I, I wanted to to get into some of the impersonations here. I, I'm not going to do all of them live. But some of them are just better with some filtering going on. But uh, MacArthur himself uh, but I go for templates, mental templates, as far as getting a character down. And do you remember Ted Baxter, the the news director on the Mary Tyler Moore show? God, don't make me answer that. That's going to say how yeah. old I am. Okay. 
This is <laughs> the template for MacArthur is Ted Baxter. Okay, here it is. This is what I say to myself before I do MacArthur. Hi, Lou. Hi, Mayor. And, <laughs> and that gets me set for MacArthur. And the reason I wrote this book, as I mentioned to you, was this incredible statement by MacArthur in front of all of these raw recruit troops, you know, that are graduating. Let me... Uh, General Douglas MacArthur. You now face a new world, a world of change. We speak in strange terms of harnessing the cosmic energy of ultimate conflict between a united human race and the sinister forces on some other planetary galaxy. The nations of the world will have to unite for the next war will be an interplanetary war. The nations of the Earth must someday make a common front against attack by people from other planets. Attack from other planets, Eddie. Can you believe that? What? What? You know, it just it it just begs wondering. What did he know? Exactly. What, what, what information? Was he to? What information well, do they have? For one thing, he saw a UFO when they retook uh, uh, the Air Force base up by Manila. Uh, they, there were 40,000 troops defending this airfield, Japanese troops, and so they they moved them out, and once it was safe, they drive MacArthur out onto a runway, and there's a UFO sitting down there, <laughs> and it flies away. Yeah, but, <laughs> you know, here's the thing, Jonathan. I mean, what <laughs> is it that the government knows or knew back then to cause them to say something like that? It's incredible. Uh, MacArthur also saw one while he was on a ship or a boat, I guess is the right term. Yeah, it, it came up out of the water and made a nice hole in the clouds, and they cruised away from it. But well, he saw it happen. It's incredible and, that you're saying that because over at O'Hare uh, International Airport, a UFO created a hole in the clouds as it was uh, leaving right there in yeah. front of everybody. And, of course... Uh, Really quick, people showed up, and nobody knew anything after that. But it was reported, and it was mm -hmm, it was reported, but nobody Bunch knew nice anything. Nice little weather hole right in uh, the cloud cover, and it stayed there. Correct. What, what does that? Yeah. You know how how do you, I mean? Not even an airliner leaves a hole in a cloud. Well, well airplanes don't go straight up either. They don't go straight yeah. up, but I mean, even an airliner going through, uh, you know, even or a large, like C-130s, you know, or a C-5A, okay? These are large, large planes. They don't leave holes in clouds when they go through it. They make the curlicues, you know, the, yeah. they stir air, but they don't make a hole that stays there. You know, but the but, funny thing was is that they literally shut down the airport for a while. Yeah, they did. 
you know. And, uh, and nobody got a picture, though, Eddie. I mean, we're all walking around with cell phones that take pictures. Why didn't somebody get a photograph? Well, you or know, did they? <laughs> well, look what happened over there. in, in uh, I believe it was in China. Didn't China? They shut an airport down for several hours. Yeah, yeah but they got My, some pictures out of that one, though. Yeah, they did. They, they did. Well, they're, they carry cameras everywhere over there. My sister was at the airport. She does a lot of uh, uh, motivational talking uh, right. uh, around the world. And she happened to be delayed because of a UFO. And she texted me <laughs> that, that they can't get airplanes in and out of there because there's a UFO. And nobody got a decent photograph of it. Again, what the heck? Well, you know, the way technology is right now, I think that pretty much if anything happens anywhere, I think photographs or video are going to be taken uh and you know with the quality of the videos and the quality of the uh, pictures getting better and better every year i think a lot of all this uh i I, they're gonna have to come clean before too long because there's not going to be any getting around it you know there's a problem with the uh with the cameras on the phones though the opening on the cameras when you take a picture is too small to take low light pictures that's why you don't get a lot of UFO pictures. Because yeah. the, the camera, I mean, they take a lot of great, you know, if it's a bright, bright background, it's a bright, you know, sunny day, it takes a great picture. Once it starts getting low light, it gets really, really terrible quality. I don't know, man. This iPhone 7 Plus that I have, it really takes great night photos. Um, I have a, I have one, too, and it, 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 I think it really takes a really horrible picture at night. I've taken pictures of planes flying by, and it's really bad. Well, yeah, maybe uh, could, maybe facing up toward the sky. You're right, but uh, you know, it, it, I'm sure they're going to end up getting better. Probably within the next three to five years, you know, it, it, you're not going to be able to hide anything from from the general public. That's true, and nothing really can come in because we've got radar. I mean, any anything we know everything that's moving across our airspace, and plus a lot, you know. But uh, uh, I'm going to try. Well, let's just back and forth a little bit here, uh, Eddie. Uh, I uh, I would like to uh, portray uh, John F. Kennedy at this point. Okay, and, I'm going to let uh, Renee back and forth with you on that one because he's too quiet all the time. No, you know what? You're not getting out of it. No, 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 no. You're not getting out of it. No, no, no. You will talk. <laughs> I know where you I, I live. Talk. I know where you live. Well, Renee, the, uh, the, the main thing is that uh, when I uh, decided that we were going to the moon, I uh, went to Rice University and made a uh, speech there. And it was uh, remarkably hot uh, that day. And uh, Lyndon was uh, sitting behind me, mopping his brow and uh, looking disgusted. The, uh, the upstaging bastard uh, gives no respect for me. However, we were uh, asked, why spend the money? Why take the chance? Why do something that is so dangerous inherently? Well, it is for that very reason that we decided to do something, not because it was easy, but because it was hard. Now, I believe the uh, Russians uh, did some, uh, some work that uh, no one was looking over their shoulders 
and I believe they endangered some astronaut or cosmonaut lives, may even have lost some people. Well, that's not the values that America has. I, I believe I said it best in my uh, speech at Rice University, and I'll uh, take you there. Actually, the, uh, the audience reaction is the very reaction that they had uh, that day. Rice University is recorded, and, and uh, this is my uh, representation Actually, of it. Quite We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Many years ago, the great British explorer, George Mallory, who was to die on Mount Everest, was asked why did he want to climb it? He said, because it is there. Well, space is there. And we're going to climb it. And the moon and the planets are there. And new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And therefore, as we set sail, we ask God's blessing on the most hazardous and dangerous and greatest adventure on which man has ever Thank you. Well, I feel that the death of John Kennedy was due to his decision to spill the beans on UFOs. Uh, there were other reasons, very probably, uh, involving Cuba, Hubert. <laughs> and and so forth, but it seems that there was so much going on, and he he also had m mentioned that he was going to say something. I believe Marilyn Monroe, through pillow talk, I believe that John Kennedy mentioned to her the UFO question, and she was about to say something. That's one way to get eradicated. <laughs> it seems. Do you believe all the presidents know about the UFOs? No, I think there are presidents you can trust and presidents that they don't want to have that information. Uh, I don't think uh, George Bush ever knew, but his dad did. Uh, oh, the peanut farmer. Uh, I don't think a, he knew. Carter. I don't think. Yeah, yeah. Carter, did, <laughs> Carter, <laughs> Carter saw one, but I don't believe they trusted him with the information, and I don't think uh, Ford ever had the information. But I think Nixon, on back, knew about it. I think every one of them behind uh, earlier than Nixon knew about it, and maybe some since then. Uh, George Bush Sr., very probably, and that he came up through some pretty tight ranks also. Well, he ran the CIA, didn't he? That's Yeah, that's what he did. Yeah. Yeah, Bush some Sr., alphabet. I guarantee you, knew a lot more than what he ever, ever spoke up about. And I yeah. don't think Obama knew anything about it. No, 
No, there's one there that you know. I don't believe that um, uh, they would. I think if anybody's going to be digging or asking, I think Trump probably would, but I don't think they're going to give him that information. Yeah, he'd tweet it, you know. <laughs> yeah, he would tweet it all out, and I and I think they I think they know that. <laughs> yeah, the information wouldn't grow old with him, I'm sure. Uh, Reagan is one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> surfer not on a surfer not on a the chat room. <laughs> he said he said uh, I bet they won't tell Trump. LOL. <laughs> I don't think they will. <laughs> I don't think so. Trump may tell them. <laughs> uh, Reagan kept trying to let the cat out of the bag. It seems, and uh, uh, he was addressing Mikhail Gorbachev when he said this. President Ronald Reagan before the United Nations speaking to Russian Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev. When you stop and think that we're all God's children wherever we live in the world, well, just think how easy his task and mine might be in these meetings that we held if suddenly there was a threat to this world from some other species from another planet Outside in the universe, we'd forget all the little local differences that we have between our countries. We would find out that we really are all human beings here on this earth together. And then everybody claps. Yeah. <laughs> he said basically the same thing another time. Uh, where's he getting this stuff? Well, <laughs> and why is he cutting it short? Before he just comes out and says, hey, we got UFOs. I think he's saying what he thinks he can get away with. I don't think I he's think putting well, it all out there because that way they can't come back and say, you spilled the beans. Well, you know what? Not really, but yeah. <laughs> Was there more of a threat of UFO attacks in the 80s than there are now, do you think? Hmm. I do we make some kind of deal with them to, to not attack us or... Well, you know, uh, <laughs> ufologists say that Eisenhower had a meeting with a UFO. Here's, uh, uh, gosh, what, uh, maybe someone in, in, in the chat room knows what airbase it was, but there was a UFO there on the tarmac. Here comes Eisenhower's airplane. They pull right up to one another. Eisenhower gets off the plane, gets on the UFO. A little while later, he gets off the UFO, back on the plane and flies away. The UFO flies away. But there was some people that saw this. The, some workmen were working on a tower, and they're watching all of this go on. So uh, who do you believe? <laughs> it's kind of hard to believe anybody. Yeah, really. It's, it's a topic that's... It's unbelievable, but it's in your face. And if you see one, it doesn't make it any less unbelievable. Right? Oh no, no, for sure. I, when I saw my when I when I saw my major UFO, it just I, since I've been doing, I've been watching, I've been looking for UFOs since I was a kid. But yeah, my main UFO that I saw about yeah about ten years ago, it just floored me. I was just in awe of seeing this thing right over my head. I was in disbelief. I was so, it was so amazing. And if I had a camera on me, I don't think I would have taken a picture because my jaw was sitting on the floor. Just, I was just amazed. 
I got to tell you a, a quick story that no one has ever heard, and probably for good reason. I have a friend who used to smoke marijuana illegally. I don't believe well, that. <laughs> <laughs> don't what's, what's going on here? So he decided to drive from Phoenix to Casa Grande. He had a buddy down there that he could purchase some from. So he and a buddy go down there, meet that buddy, and get their marijuana. They go out, and they didn't want to be caught. So they go into the middle of a cotton field. The, the cotton is about six inches high. They're out in the middle of a cotton field where if there's a car that comes, they can bury it real quick and act natural. So... So these guys are out there, and granted, they're probably, for the first time in a long time, they're taking a puff of this and, and getting a little distorted. But here comes the Phoenix Lights. They're looking at this thing, and it was extraordinarily low, and they're thinking it's going to land on them. They're thinking it's so low it's going to crash. And they, being stoned, start running. And <laughs> And they are, they're terrified. They're running like heck. They've got their, their goods in their pockets, and they're tearing across. They're falling down in this cotton, and the thing silently goes over the top of them, and they watch it go by. And I hear this, like, just last year. I mean, that it's, it's, it was 1997, and I hear about it last year. But uh, when I'm talking about my book, he says, oh, I got one for you. <laughs> So, that's I mean, a hell of a thing to see when you're baked. Oh my god! <laughs> and you heard it first here on L and M Radio Network <laughs> with Paranormal right Analytical. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, won't mother be proud? Anyway, <laughs> uh, let's do another one of these. The evidence that there are objects which have been seen in our atmosphere and even on terra firma that cannot be accounted for either as man-made objects or as any physical force or effect known to our scientists seems to me to be overwhelming. I'll cut him off there. He goes on. But uh, Lord Hill Norton uh, saw one also. And and he started studying about it. Uh, he was uh, a lord. <laughs> you must be well, somebody special if you get to be a lord. Real, real quick, we're going to have to take our last quick break. We're not going to play music on this one because I want to get right back into this as quickly as possible because this is really good stuff. Right. But uh, while we go on break, uh, we had a surfer not ask. Uh, Ask him if it was Holloman Air Force Base where Eisenhower was. And I'll let you answer that yes. as soon as we get back. You can say yes or no real quick. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yes. Yes, it was. <laughs> it was. So there you go. Yes, <laughs> so that was real quick before the break. So here we go. Let's take this and we'll be right back. Nobody go away. It's going to be good.
There are days that the red pill is bitter in my stomach, but I can't get it back out. I think because I have to. I speak because I have no choice. I walk through this dark age we're in with open eyes. Listen to Open Eyes on LateNightInTheMidlands.com And together, maybe we won't stumble and fall. The LNM Radio Network offers a chat room for you, the listener, to connect with others who are interested in the topics and guests that the LNM Radio Network brings to you. During the live shows, the hosts will even visit the chat room and chat with you, the listener. Click on the big red chat and listen button at the top of the website and join us. No subscription is needed at either lnmradionetwork.com or latenightinthemidlands.com. Why subscribe to Late Night in the Midlands, you ask? Well, I'll tell you why. Late Night in the Midlands covers everything. And through the thousands of expert guests who have joined Michael Vera on his show, come pieces of the big puzzle, which started many years ago. Michael and his guests reveal information dating back to the beginning of time. To this very moment, Michael Vera not only brings you the best guests with the best information, but Michael is not afraid to call out those who are less than honest. You see, in this day and age, we need a radio show we can count on and a radio host we can trust to expose the truth one show at a time. So, become a late-nighter and subscribe now. Talk radio like no other. Late Night in the Midlands, bringing the truth back to talk radio. Do you need toner for your Epson, Hewlett-Packard, Canon, Brother, Apple, or Sharp printers? Look no further than Laser Technologies. In business for over 20 years, they offer the lowest prices on toner on the web. They can also repair your laser printers and toners fast and easy. Call their expert staff today at 561-792-9600 or email us at service at laser-technologies.com for all your toner needs. All toner is shipped nationwide. Why wait? Get the lowest prices on toner. Call or email us today. There is a better radio show beyond that which is known to the people. It is a radio show more informative than others and as timeless as infinity. It is the equilibrium between light and dark, between the sheeple and the paranormal, and it is heard at the base of man's ignorance and at the summit of his knowledge. This is the radio show of imagination, a show we call The Secret Teachings. are back. So Jonathan Abel is with us on Roosevelt and the UFOs. And we have my co-host Renee Rodriguez and this is Paranormal Analytical. I'm your host Eddie Hill. Welcome back everybody and we're going to continue with the show. We had some good stuff. I went ahead and decided not to play music for you guys this time around (laughs) because we've got so much good stuff coming your way and I don't want to waste it. So to get right back in it, Jonathan, let's start where we left off. Go for it. Well, 
Eddie, I want to do these fairly quickly, and I'm, I'm impersonating these different astronauts. I worked hard on, on getting how they talk, and uh, I hope my uh, redneck green screen is working great uh, out there in the chat room. Let's get on with this. I believe these extraterrestrial vehicles and their crews are visiting this planet from other planets. Most astronauts were reluctant to discuss UFOs. I did have occasion in 1951 to have two days of observation of many flights of them of different sizes, flying in fighter formation, generally east to west over Europe. That's Gordy, Gordo Cooper there. Yeah, He's Gordon Cooper, yep. The most vocal of all of the astronauts. He doesn't mind talking about UFOs one bit. They're matter of fact to the man. He's seen them and seen them. Here we go. Another right stuff astronaut. Yeah, I, I was testing a P 51 fighter in Minneapolis when I uh, spotted this object. I was about uh, 10,000 feet. On a nice, bright, sunny afternoon. About the same time, I realized that it was suddenly going away from me. And there I was running at about, well, I was running about 300 miles per hour ground ground speed. I tracked it for a little way, and then all of a sudden, the damn thing just took off. It was right out of here. It climbed out about a 45-degree climbing turn and accelerated and just flat. Gone. Just disappeared. That was Deke Slayton, Donald Kent Deke Slayton. At no time when the astronauts were in space were they alone. There was a constant surveillance by UFOs. Scott Carpenter, Project Mercury. Guy's fairly straight guy. Yeah. There are things out there. There absolutely is. That was an X-15 test pilot. He was scads of miles above the Earth at the time, looking out the window. That's Bob White, Robert Michael Bob White. And uh, we have contact with alien cultures. That's uh, Brian O'Leary. He's uh, one of the more vocal folks as far as coming out about UFOs these days. And of the seven Wright Stuff astronauts, and the manned space program, we've got Gordo, we've got Deke, we've got Scott, we've got Bob White, Todd O'Leary, and a fellow that, uh, he's my favorite astronaut, uh, Ed Mitchell, lunar module pilot, Apollo 14, and the sixth man to walk on the moon. He says he's never seen one, but he knows all kinds of people that are very intelligent, very grounded, and have seen them. So he's a believer and an advocate for giving up uh, uh, the beans, so to speak, uh, uh, as far as uh, divulging. So we get down to those Phoenix lights that we were talking about, and really, we, we talked about them. <laughs> We've gone there already. But... Uh, you know, I used to watch the uh, the NASA feeds when they used to do them live. I don't know if they still do them. About three or four years ago, when I still had cable, 
And I used to watch it for hours late at night. And every once in a while, a UFO would get in front of the camera. And you're like, oh, cool, you watch it? And then they cut off the feed they just like off. that. Yeah, they got somebody with a trigger finger there to cut them off. I mean, if if there's that many of them out there that you got to keep a watch and you got to, you know, you see something crazy out the window there behind the astronaut, it's, you know, <laughs> you're giving it away there. And they seem to do it fairly regularly. There's a lot of stuff flying around up there uh, that uh, shouldn't be changing course. No, did you ever, speaking of changing course, did you ever see that video that's on YouTube where that UFO was seen in space and it looked like something fired at it? You could see like a flash and you see this UFO going one direction, stop, then go back as whatever the projectile was that went past it and then continued its course after it went by. I mean, let's face it, when anything's floating in outer space and it's got a trajectory going a certain way, it doesn't, things don't just change course in outer space. Well, there, there, NASA said that it was just ice. And then whenever they turn on thrusters, it pushed that piece of ice out of the way, supposedly. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. Sure. (laughs) Well, people kind of forget that NASA is not a civilian agency. It's, it's it's military, and people kind of forget that. And you know, they can do whatever they want. They can lie to us, and I mean, they do all, all the time. So you got to remember that, people. NASA is not always our friend. That's true. Uh, can I give you the flowchart of the creation? of the original Men in Black. This is kind of what it gets down to. Go ahead and talk it through. That way everybody can hear okay. it. Okay. You, you can see it better uh, if I talk it through. Yeah. Okay. What we've got here first is masses of sightings. FDR was uh, cautioned by his people that there's so many sightings, so many headlines, we got to do something about it. It's kind of looking bad. It looks like we're getting attacked from outer space during our war. Well, why FDR then asked himself, why would they attack during a war? Well, Roosevelt's fear came from a 16th century treatise on war put together by Sun Wu which is a Chinese fella, uh, and his number three um, tactic for war was loot a burning house. In other words, if you were from another planet and intent on taking over Earth, and you see all this conflict going on, and we're murdering one another and exploding and dropping bombs, why wouldn't you just float around a while and see who, see who wins, and while the Earth is totally depleted, take over. You loot a burning house. The headlines led to uh, a question of interplanetary war. We go then to MacArthur taking over the situation. FDR and Marshall, uh, F- MacArthur's boss, gave it to him, and... MacArthur, here's the key to this thing. 
he needed a group, an action group, an action team to go and follow orders. So he created, and we know this, FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, confirms that MacArthur put together the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, or the IPU, of the U.S. Army. Extraordinary stuff. So that had to be the group that created the MacArthur Report. You get the MacArthur Report put together by what we would now call the original men in black. Who the heck were they? They were Doolittle's Raiders, and I'll tell you why we know this. After 30 seconds over Tokyo, in which Doolittle, uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, had 80 volunteers do something. And this is how he recruited, recruited them. He says, I want you to volunteer to do something to a country it's never been done to before. And so they volunteered. He was a very charismatic kind of guy, kind of a Glenn Ford looking guy. And uh, uh, he's convinced 80 people to start training on short runway takeoffs. Right. Well, of course, what he what he did, uh, he was he he was a flyer. He started out as a stunt pilot and a wing walker. And the guy actually invented totally instrument flying. He flew the first airplane that you could not see out of. He totally went on instruments. He flew around. He came back and he landed it without seeing where he was. He just totally on instruments and uh, really invented how to do that. Spencer Tracy played Doolittle in the movie, the film's opening subtitle. This is the movie. 131 days after December 7th, 1941, a handful of young men who had never dreamed of glory struck the first blow at the heart of Japan. This is their true story. We tell here. That was uh, uh, my version of the opening uh, uh words of 30 seconds over tokyo which was it's an excellent movie and uh these guys had to there they are so doolittle's doolittle's raiders are actually the what uh that movie uh pearl harbor was portraying when it came out uh the latest movie pearl harbor where they were actually taking off on those shorter runways in order to be able to, to you know, launch from that uh, aircraft carrier with these bombers on that bombing on that bombing mission. They got uh, 16 planes onto the Hornet. They took out all of the guns. They didn't want to shoot. They wanted to drop a few bombs. They just wanted to make a point. Right. They didn't want to take out Tokyo. They wanted to punch them on the nose just a little bit and. Uh, the what it did for morale on both sides, it took away the Japanese morale and it gave America what we needed to get our inertia going again and win the war. Um, they took out the they took out the guns and they put in 
uh, uh, broomsticks. Mm -hmm. Exactly. They took out uh, the heavy stuff and they put in rubber tanks for gasoline so they could fuel themselves uh, while they were flying. They actually had to fly 2,000 miles on what they had on board because they saw a Japanese fishing boat out in the water and they figured, oh no, maybe they radioed Japan that we're coming. So they blow the fishing boat out of the water and Doolittle says, well, we're going to have to risk it. We've got to do this thing. So they flew to Japan. Of course, you can't land a bomber on a boat. So they had to go to friendly uh, landing fields in China. Japan, by the way, uh, under Hirohito, the racism was incredible. Uh, Hirohito treated the Koreans less than dogs and murdered whole villages just to see how easy it would be to murder villages in China and, and uh, on Luzon. Uh, it it w the Japanese were uh, Hirohito was a cheerleader of atrocity, uh, much worse than anything that happened in Europe. There were some horrible things being done to our captured military uh, in the Philippines, and I won't go into it. It's it was really awful, but uh, they blessed the bombs before they took off. That's Doolittle taking off first because it was the shortest deck. It was his idea, so he decided, I'm going first. He was also the best flyer. Boy, that would sure the make days. the pucker factor go up, wouldn't it? Oh, golly, yeah. <laughs> uh, so there's the, the B-25s lashed down on the deck, and uh, most of them made it. Uh, uh, there were only a few crews that got captured by the Japanese, of course, they were tortured, uh, and uh, most of uh, the Doolittle's raiders landed safely in China, and that made them available. Here's the deal. Jimmy Doolittle was an older guy. He was at the top of his game. Suddenly, he's a general. They promote him. He jumped two grades and became a general and got the Congressional Medal of Honor for 30 seconds over Tokyo. You had MacArthur, who got back the Philippines. They gave him the Congressional Medal of Honor. And there they were in Japan at the old American, uh, uh, the American consul, consular building, right under Hirohito's nose. I mean, Hirohito had to look out his uh, palace window right at MacArthur's office. It was great one-upmanship. But here you had these two guys smoking cigars, putting their feet up on the desk, having a couple of Scots, uh, Scotch whiskeys uh, neat, and going after UFOs. Because suddenly, MacArthur is tasked with finding out, answering, answering the UFO question, and here's Jimmy Doolittle with 80 guys. Now, not all of them were selected for the men in black, but the ones that were suited for it, Doolittle selected. 
the rest of them there's there's very little in this about in the archives but the other participants in the raid were strangely scattered through the military and the rest of them we don't know what happened so i believe there was only one team that had the transportation knew how to fly it were available had a boss that could get away with anything because the big boss was sitting around drinking scotch with him and so they had to be really the team that put all of this 20,000 pages of information together. Wow. They were the only people available for it through the war. And get this, you want the average age? 19 years old. So these were just kids. They were kids. They were the original men in black. They did the work. They, they had to. There was... Everybody else was fighting the war, uh, uh, and we don't know what happened to Doolittle's Raiders. Now, Doolittle's Raiders are the very ultimate story of surmounting obstacles and allegiance to their country. These are the last three. my top candidates for the missions relating to MacArthur's Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit. The Navajo Code Talkers the Black Buffalo Soldiers of the 370th Regimental Combat Team. And now, at last, the Japanese-American 442nd Combat Team made up almost entirely of first-generation Nisei volunteers. They've all been awarded Regimental Congressional Medals of Honor. The Japanese-Americans were assigned to the European Theater and served valiantly in Italy, France, and Germany. Though their families were imprisoned in American internment camps, they were the most highly decorated infantry regiment in the history of the United States Army. I do hope Doolittle's Raiders feel the admiration I and my country have for them. If the future brings this planet another great challenge, May it also bring mankind a hero to lead a band of heroes such as these. This damned old world may need a few heroes. Yes, sir. Let's get into a little bit. We've got four minutes. I want you to talk a little bit about some of the most, I guess you could say, controversial or interesting information that you have in your book a little bit about that uh to try and talk about some of the information that you found that uh, you think people should know about i got one for you uh the way things wrapped up with this overall story was an event in china there was a crash in china it was documented with the new technique of 3D mapping. They actually made a model. Having flown over it, taking pictures, they could do 3D modeling. And there was a crash. Something, uh, I think, is how it's pronounced. Um, and it was, we don't know a lot about it, but... 
We do know that both Jimmy Doolittle and Douglas MacArthur went to China to head up what all this was. And apparently it was the mother of all motherships <laughs> had crashed. And uh, it was big enough to be uh, uh, home for a lot of Foo Fighters and maybe a habitat for ant people. <laughs> Who knows? But we, the one thing we do know about that crash in China was that MacArthur and Doolittle came back and they were they were incredibly uh, they were incredibly affected. That's that that was the word. They were incredibly affected by this particular retrieval, and uh, and that's all we know about it. So from that, in the last three chapters, I developed. That's all we know. There's a bit of a story in in that, and it's a little bit scary. So yeah, it is absolutely. The whole thing is a little bit scary. How did you I find the information? Excuse me. How did you find the information about this craft? Wow. Over a, about a year and a half of of digging around, uh, I came across it, and I'm not sure where. I'm not. I'm not sure where anymore. Well, that's uh, pretty much all the time we have, gentlemen. Jonathan Abel, everybody, we appreciate you being on the show with us. Thank you so much. Uh, anybody want to get a hold of a, a copy of his book? It is MacArthur and the UFOs. You can also check that out on Amazon as well. Uh, I, I did found it. On, I did find it on there, by the way. So yeah. that was that's pretty cool. So we want to thank you again, Jonathan, for being on the show with us. Uh, we've got Renee Rodriguez as my co-host. I'm Eddie Hill, your host for Paranormal Analytical. And we just want to remind everybody to please check out all the pages from our guest. He's been great, and he's taken the time out to be on the show with us and talk about all this interesting and great stuff. Thank you so much, everybody, for being on here. Also, if you would, check out Paranormal Analytical on YouTube, Facebook. Uh, I think uh, we got a couple of more places, don't we, Renee, <laughs> here and there? <laughs> But, uh, uh, they're all over the place. I can't remember either. Yeah, so yeah, we're 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 all over. Just <laughs> paranormal analytical. You'll find us on there. But uh, we want to appreciate I everybody for for so listening much, to guys. us. You know, thank you thank so much. Thank you so much. And you're, welcome. Uh, you're very welcome, Jonathan. And I am going to play our exit music right now, and we shall see you guys next Thursday at 11 p.m. Central, 12 a.m. Eastern. And uh, you all take care, and thanks once again for joining us. Good night, all. Thank you.